Welcome to episode 173 of Control the Controllables. And what an exciting US Open we are having, as as predicted. If you listen to our panel, it was said that this is going to be one of the most open Grand Slams for years, on the men's side and on the women's side. And there's going to be full of storylines. And what bigger storyline than Serena Williams playing her last ever match as a professional tennis player or not. She's alluded in the last couple of days that she might play in Australia. She hasn't given us the full answer. If you watched her, she had an amazing run and a quite incredible match as she lost to the Australian Tom Lanovich in the third round. Just top quality level tennis, amazing atmosphere on Arthur Ashe Stadium. And she she cried. She spoke about her family. She spoke beautifully about her sister. You know, there would be no Serena without Venus. And I think we all had a tear in our eye as we listened to that. But who knows? She's a great champion. She certainly showed us a level that she hasn't done for a few years. And I really do hope that we do get to see her again. But if not, congratulations, Serena Williams, on a, on a quite incredible career. And Rafael Nadal, he lost his first Grand Slam match of 2022. Maybe we should have seen it coming. You know, he's had a difficult run-up. He's had injuries. He hasn't had the best results. And he's had some personal problems back at home. His, his wife, and I hope she's doing okay. I know they're expecting their first child, and things haven't been going quite so well. And it just goes to show how it is all linked. You know, we can't separate tennis from life, or we can't separate life from tennis and sport and and passion. And we see it time and time again. So we really hope and send our best wishes to Rafa and his family for the safe delivery of, I believe it's a boy, and I would imagine he won't have a bad forehand as well in a few years' time. But today's guest, today's guest, it's we're spreading our wings a little bit. And I have to thank and shout out Kieran Vorster, who big friend of, of the podcast and who you guys have listened to in many episodes over, over the last couple of years. And Kieran, who is currently the fitness coach of Liam Brody, has worked at the top level of many sports. And one of one of the athletes he's worked with over the years is the, the cricketer Monty Panesar, who you will be listening to today, who's had an incredible career in England England cricketer, got got some, as we'll talk about throughout the conversation, some incredible records, incredible wicket-taking against some of the very best players in the world. And he's someone who absolutely loves his tennis. He loves his sport. He's a, he's a real character. You know, he has his own podcast. He's got big dreams as he moves into the media world. And for us to have that chat, and and, and for me, it's, it's all links back in to tennis. It links back in to sport. And it links back in to life. And some of the the stories, it comes from a different lens in a different sport, but it's all the same thing, you know, ultimately the lessons that we're learning. And I know that you guys will take a lot from this episode. So sit back and listen to Monty Panesar. So Monty Panesar, big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Oh, really good. Thank you. Um, I've, I'm, you know, it's an absolute honor to be here and um, I want to give a good shout out to my fitness trainer, Kieran, 
he was brilliant at giving me you know really personalized programs and i still do them to this date because they, I, I don't know what it is like tennis fitness programs i don't know they've designed in a way where you actually you feel like you get more out of your out of your body and you they put you under pressure or i don't know what it is the intensity of the running and everything it was just like are they tailored differently to other sports I think, and again, just for, for the listeners, that's Kieran Vorster, who Kieran's been on the show and, and Kieran also joins us. We do a, a preview and review of all the Grand Slams and Kieran's always on the panel and, and does an amazing job. Doesn't hold back on his opinions and that's what we love Kieran for as well. But I think, yeah, they are. I mean, I, I guess I've, I've actually just had a... I've just had to sit down there. My new head of S&C coach at the, at the academy here in Spain he, he actually comes from cricket. So he's been with Glamorgan for the last 10 years. So he's moving across from cricket to tennis. So we've had some interesting conversations this morning. And obviously in the junior development years, you, you're ultimately trying to build a general athlete who's going to be robust. And and then you start getting into the into the more specific nature. And, and I think the, the thing about tennis is you have to be so fit in so many variable ways. You know, you you have to be agile. You have to have endurance. You have to be quick. You have to be flexible. You have to be strong and powerful, but to get the right directional changes, you know. But and it's but it's quite hard, and and the and the top coaches like Kieran, it's quite a niche because tennis. You don't know how long a tennis match is going to be. You know, you don't know what your output's going to be. You don't know what the weather's going to be like. You don't know what time you're going to play. You know, there's there's many court surfaces are changing all the time. There's there's a lot of variables that go into it. So I would imagine somebody like Kieran, who has got that input and and got that experience, he his transferability of that will absolutely go across sports. So it's good to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think especially like myself, you know, where I think being athletic or athletic, you know, being athletic for your body. That's something I, I don't think I trained smart enough when I when I was at the England team. I was strong, but I wasn't athletic for my body. So like doing yeah. um, bird peas, um, you know, uh, uh, pull ups with your body weight. So like body weight exercises. And I think tennis is very much focused on like your body weight exercises, running, you know, as hard as you can for like the sessions that I did with Kieran. Like uh, I'll do one minute on the treadmill and then 30 second rest. But if it was at like uh, 15 kilometers for a minute, like it would motivate you and challenge you to say, right, can I get to maybe 17? And you gradually keep working hard. So it'll be like right out of the 10 sets, maybe I'll do five at 15, I'll do three at uh, 16, and maybe I'll try and push myself two at 17. And boy, the workout is unbelievable. It, it really like, it's the it's same as cricket. I just have to run really fast. It's that initial burst, got to be quick, in and out, in and out, more speed endurance. And I just think there's so much transfer, um, uh, transferable fitness skills of speed endurance into cricket and tennis. And I wish when I played for England, you know, someone like Kieran came into my life and just said, look, Monty, mate, I'm going to get you athletic, but we just got to change your training. We've got to do more bodyweight stuff. I've got to do more hit, hit training, more speed endurance. So... Um, that I missed that when I played for England. I think I would have been a much better fielder and, and much more athletic. 
Well, you certainly you certainly had a great career, Monty, and and I think you know with with this podcast, one of the the, the starting points. I think is is always as fascinating as someone who's gone on and played to such a, a high international level, represented your country. I always think the story of how you got into your sport and, and how maybe you made your breaks. Did you get lucky, you know, on reflection? Could you have had break earlier? You know, all those bits. Tell us, tell us how you how you got into cricket and how you then got the breakthrough to becoming a professional cricket player. Yeah, like for me, um, I had a I had a really good club called Luton Town in Indians, which you know they used to play first class cricket there. And at the time, Luton Luton Town Cricket Club needed members. You know, it was like um, beginning to fold. And Luton Indians was our original name, which we were used to play at Lancaster Avenue, which was a more of a a council pitch. But um, as we used to drive up the road, there'll be David Cleet would live in a bungalow who was a Luton <laughs> Town football manager yeah. at the time. So we would all drive past him and everyone was like, yeah, that's David Pleat's house, you know, like <laughs> big bungalow he used to live in. And then we used to go and play cricket there. So uh, there was that kind of affiliation at a young age, you know, with sport and Gordon Greenwich. He, he came to Luton Town and we used to have this um, mini World Cup, India, Pakistan, England, West Indies. And Gornard Greenwich said to me, when you play off, when you play a forward defence, as you play it, you need to turn the back foot, um, turn the toes. And uh, it was just like, how do I say it? Young age, you know, when you're, when you're at a young age and you're, and, you're, and you're rubbing, not shoulders, but you're meeting big sports stars, it kind of is that environment starts set in place, you know? Your thoughts, your visualisation, you've got good facilities, playing cricket all the time. And then I went for a trial for Bedfordshire under 12s, wanted to be like Wazi Makram, got in the trials. So you start believing in the system. You start thinking, yeah, I can actually be a professional cricketer until I got the age of 15, where Paul Taylor was the coach and Tony Pemberthy for um, Bedfordshire under 15s when they played professionals at Northlands. And Paul Taylor said to me, look, Monty, I think you should try left arm spin. You just, you don't really have it as a seamer. So I... I tried it. He goes, you've got long fingers. So, and, and and obviously quite, you know, broad shoulders. And he goes, you've got good shoulders and and, and that's what you need for spin. Yeah. First ball I landed, it just turned and bounced. And, and and the whole net session, he goes, this is so good. Next game, try and ball spin. So my parents took me in a Vauxhall Carlton at the time. That's what we had. And I spoke to my coach, Hitu Nayak, who was the, you know, the youth coach. He goes, try spin bowling because that's what he knows better. So we played against Worcestershire under 15s at Royal Grammar School, and I took um, seven for 35. Wow! In that match, and uh, immediately uh, I went back to him, and he goes, "Just stick to it now." And that was it. So people talk about, you know, who's your Messiah or who's your, you know, this um, I don't know, invisible force, or do you believe in a God or whatever? I'll say my Messiah of cricket is Paul Taylor. Okay. Because if he never gave me that piece of information to say become a left-arm spinner, I don't think I would ever become a professional cricketer. Yeah. So sometimes in in life you need that one person to set you off in the right direction. And forever, I'm always saying thank you, Paul Taylor, for making me a yeah. left-arm spinner. Yeah, brilliant story. Because that when you were saying Wasim Akram, I was saying you know I love my cricket and I've I've watched you 
for for many years and watched watched cricket for for many many years. And I was thinking that you you've not gone Wasim Akram's route, you know. So I, I, the next question I was going to say, how did you get into spin? So was it just a, a natural thing? Uh, it's something in the maybe something in the genes. I know you're 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 English. You were born in England, but coming from a, a, an Indi- Indian background. I know when I've been in India they just play cricket it's everywhere and and even the tennis players when you're in the hotel at the tournaments the indian tennis players they're spinning the ball they're they're in the corridors and they're playing with the back of the tennis racket and, and playing cricket in the corridors is is it, it genetic did you have cricket in the genes where did this spin magic come from well um you know i, I think that's a great question because um you know for me uh i i, I found that uh when um, I was, my dad, he was an all-rounder and used to play for Luton Tack College at the time. Okay. And he would take me, you know, scoring with him. And I, I was the scorer for the team as a 11-year-old. Yeah. And and I remember him, you know, getting 36 in one game and taking a few wickets. Um, so that's how I got into cricket. And uh, so, you know, my dad was obviously, you know, enjoying cricket. But then um, it was really then when I, when I got older, that I started to play, you know, a bit more. I was kind of a chubby little kid, and um, you know, my dad goes, "Look, I think you should play cricket just for your fitness, you know, <laughs> just to keep yeah. slim. You don't want to be too fat." And then that's I, I didn't I didn't enjoy training. I didn't enjoy cricket training. Didn't enjoy yeah. doing the two laps. It, I was like, "Oh, I don't really want to, you know, play cricket." But it just gradually the passion of Luton Indians, the coaches who wanted one cricketer you know, from the club to play for England, their passion and drive just instilled and gradually I fell in love with the, with the game. And and then that turning moment was with, with Paul Taylor when I became a spinner and then immediately played, you know, Bedfordshire, minor counties at the age of 16. I think 17, 18, got picked up by England under 19s. Um, and then uh, North Ants, I was already, you know, contracted at the age of 17. So uh, things happened very quickly uh, mm. when I became a spinner. And... Uh, it was, yeah, you know, I guess when in life, when things become that easy, um, then, you know, this is the right, right, right path for me. And, and it's quite interesting what you're saying there, because I think quite often the sports person's journey is they love it. They've got passion. It's it's something they do for fun. And then as they get better and better and better, at some point it maybe becomes a bit too serious and, and becomes a job and you kind of, you lose sight of that little boy, a little girl that, that started out playing the sport. But it's interesting that you say you weren't so keen, but gradually the sport grabbed you. Was there a point where you lost that love and passion of the sport during your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, during my time at Essex, um, Paul Grayson kind of like, he goes, he goes, what I've seen you when I've only played for England is a left-arm spinner himself. So, Sometimes, you know, it's easier talking to left-arm spinners or someone who bowls spin. Just about cricket, emotionally how you feel. You kind of feel like they may understand, you know, where you're coming from. And he goes, look, you're just not playing with the same smile on your face. You don't have that same energy. Like, I feel like you're falling out of love, you know, with cricket. You know, know, you're not loving cricket like you used to. He goes, why don't you maybe, you know, go and go to the PCA. They'll try and maybe you know, go sit with a sports psychologist and, and just have a chat with them. Because sometimes it happens in all of our lives, you know. We play so much, we've achieved what we wanted. You know, when you're young, it's the unknown of like, oh, what is it like playing for England? 
Um, what is it like playing at the highest level? What is it like playing against the best players in the world for your country? Because once you tick those boxes, you kind of like think, what is else left to do? And sometimes you just don't have that motivation and drive. And he goes, sometimes it's good to speak, you know, to and, and, and chat to a sports psychologist. So I had that chat, went away for, a, you know, a week and then came back and enjoyed it. But I had my little struggles in and out, in and out. And um, eventually, like, you know, I think the psychologist kind of said, look, maybe take a bit of medication. And I remember taking my first antidepressant pill. It was like, yeah. wow, why does my mind feel so quiet? I even said to my family yeah. and friends, they go, they go, you're really quiet, Monty. I said, yeah, I've been taking my medication. That's why. Okay. It, and, it, but but they go, you're really quiet and calm, but you, you don't have your personality. You don't have your natural personality coming out. And, um, and I realized that I felt like, it numbs the problem. So then I kind of like, um, you know, use a holistic approach. And I just went, right. I went to my local GP. He goes, look, I don't want you to go on the medication. I'm going to give you a couple of books, how to increase your serotonin, um, the, uh, and, and, and also diet, which really helped. And then just then when I went to Australia uh, after the, during the ashes, when I was on, you know, a bit of a medication at the time and I, no one knew, but the doctor knew and I kind of put a bit of weight and stuff on as well. And there, like the physio at my grade club said, look, just make a list of things that make you happy. And whenever you feel a little bit, whatever, not great, just go and do it. Watch a funny movie. Call your friend. Um, go for a run. Do exercise. Listen to your favorite music. Do a bit of reading. He goes, these are like um, mechanisms um, that take you away from um, uh, medication. Yeah. I started to do that, felt better. You know, it was really good. And then I think even my like my my, my friends and you know uh, were, were were saying family like why don't you like you know start I remember when you was a youngster you used to go to the you know the Sikh temple every Sunday mornings um, you know the, perhaps traditionally my parents wanted me you know to grow up a, a Sikh I don't know anything yeah. about obviously in religion in depth yeah. you know that's why I you know I I don't tend to talk too much about it because yeah. I'm not that religious myself but they go why don't you you know just start going there and it just and helps remember, center who you are doesn't it to, yeah to, to, kind to of center remind, who, yeah yeah reminds you at a young age you know gives you an identity it's like if someone asks me who are you I'll say yeah I'm a Sikh I'll go to the you know yeah. temple and I remember just sitting there listening to um, uh, like, like you know, the the the, the Kirtan, which is like you know the, the music that goes on and 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 the storytelling that they tell there, and it just gave me another sense of peace. I was very relaxed, very centered, and and I thought to myself, yeah, this that's another one. Put it on the do list, you know. So, yeah. but then the funny thing is that is when I spoke to one of my other sort of um, professors, like in um, you know health and well being, he said that. Um, in cricket, why people have these kind of issues because loneliness is the breeding ground for mental health issues. But then when I go to, let's say, a Sikh temple or I go to the, a local cricket club or any place of congregation, it, 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 you know, you can talk about your life, problem half, problem shared. And you can see why the effect of, you know, me going Sunday morning was, was important because yeah. I was also mixing it with friends. Having a chit-chat is a mm. form of congregation. So Absolutely. I would always say to people, you know, Try and, you know, get in, try and have that congregation wherever you can, because I think that really helps your mind and humans. You know, that's what we are. We are we are effectively, you know, meeting. We need to be meeting and, and, and hanging with other human beings. 
Um, you know, you don't want to, you know, uh, leave yourself in isolation because yeah. uh, that that can lead to, you know, um, things which, you know, may not help you in the long run. But I think there's, it's it's a topic. I mean, we've we've had it on the podcast. We've had mental health awareness weeks. It's a, it's a topic being a tennis player many years ago and tennis coach. It's, it's always right there, you know, and I, and I think the stigma has been taken away the last few years, which is great. I think people are talking a lot more openly. But the reality is in professional athletes or high-level athletes, 35%, I believe, is the figure of people that, that have strong mental health struggles. You know, I'm a believer that we all have a degree of mental health struggle as, as human beings, just in life. It's just like physical health. We're going to have, you know, we all pick up colds. We all pick up, there's a certain range, but at the same time, we're all going to have a certain degree. Now, when I think about tennis, unless you're from Australia, you tend to travel away from home maximum three, four weeks at a time. Um, but it, that's, more challenging than sports like football that you might go away for a night, uh, but you're spending a lot of time on the road. But when you look at cricket and there's been obviously a lot of high profile mental health struggles in, in, in cricket, I think the average that I heard and you'll be able to tell me better than this Monty is 250 to 270 days a year in a hotel uh, away, away from home traveling, you know, these big, long, long tours that you do so that's one bit the second bit is i know you also had big struggles with your shoulder and and an injury and, and if you think of those two times sitting in a hotel room and having injuries they're probably the two most lonely places and times that you can possibly have and that comes in abundance in cricket you know would you say that that was contributors to yourself and and to others that have seemed to have have and i guess my question on that now that you've had time to reflect what is the solution to that well look i that's a great question because i remember at the time um you know people you gotta you gotta have some good mates in the dressing room that you can you know talk about things other than cricket and i felt probably at the time when i loved cricket you know yeah i had mates around me but i didn't have like like a best friend or someone that i can just sort of just talk about things that are going through my mind emotionally um, because you're such a competitive environment and you're always scared of like, oh, well, if I tell the coach, then my next game, I'm not going to get a chance to play. You know, I'm not going to get that chance. And then I'm going to get dropped from the tour. I won't get uh, my England career's over. Let's just go in the gym. Let's just, you know, keep it all to myself and, you know, not tell anyone and then I can keep playing. And that that is the conversation. That is that stigma where you're like, uh, you need that mate, you know, and it's a lot more open now. Like people do understand that, oh, if the guy's not in great form or, the, or there's a sense of injury, you know, it, 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 the coach will probably be a bit more sympathetic and think, look, it's okay, get through it. Don't worry about your place. Them sort of conversations coming from coaches are much more valuable. Way. And yeah, they go so such a long way. Monty, I, I remember under 16s i was at the under 16 european championship and and i remember speaking to the coach and saying look i'm struggling right now you know i f don't feel i'm playing very well but I, I had a very open conversation we then traveled off to lithuania or portugal uh, poland the the next day and we played the team championships and i didn't get selected and at the end of the trip i said you know it would have been you know what's going on and he said well I didn't feel I could play you because you told me you were really struggling with how you were playing. And so, so the, 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 
and that's okay, that's juniors, but it's kind of already like professional. And and I think back in those days, me and you were very similar age, when you were playing to that level, the reality is it wasn't the done thing to open up because exactly what you're saying, you're, you're concerned or, or, or if you tell someone in the team, they go and tell the coach because they want to get their place. You know, whereas I think showing that vulnerability now is, I hope, is actually seen as a bit more of a positive. You know, if a player is able to show their vulnerable side, then they're in a much better place to be able to work through it and possibly be the right person to get selected. You know, so it's it, it is definitely big crossover between those things. And as I as I um to move on to a, a positive thing, and I I can't have uh, an international cricketer on without asking how how was that moment when you were selected for the first time to play for England? You know, how were you, how were you told? How how did you feel? You know, how did you share that with your friends and family? Yeah, look, I was I was extremely excited. I remember. Um, they needed a two spinners to go to India, and it's between Ian Blackwell, Gareth Batty, and myself. And they picked me and Ian Blackwell, and uh, off we went. And uh, you know, I told my family, and they were like, you know, make sure you know you make the most of the opportunity, go out and train hard, and do all the right things. But I never kind of expected that. Oh, I'll be playing the first Test match, but they need an attacking spinner, someone who can spin the ball. And Freddie, you know, he he kind of like felt like. Yeah, Monty seems like a right option for me. You know, he can spin it hard and and and, and he can do well. So he picked me, and uh, um, I remember during the meeting, um, he he said uh, uh, he gave my uh, my my name was the last name, and uh, Andrew Flintoff he backed me, and he goes look, um, I, I said like, is are you sure? Am I playing tomorrow? Is it twelfth month? And now he goes, you're playing tomorrow, and I couldn't believe it. So I went in my room, wrote down all the sort of uh, field settings and did all of that kind of stuff. Went to uh, Freddie and showed it to him. He was, he was, I was really surprised. And he was like, you know, looking at everything. And he was there playing FIFA with, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Steve Harmison and Jimmy and Hoggard and all of these guys. Because, like, that kind of like that moment was a real interesting moment. It was like, well, this is how the greats switch off, right? It's like, you know, it's like, a, it's like holding a fist. If you keep, if you keep staying tight on that fist, yeah. you're going to get tired. But you got to know, like when you enter the ground, you're on it. You, you know, you, 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 that's it. Intensity now. But when you come off the pitch, immediately let go of it. And I think that's what's like. All right, that this is what I need to bring into my cricket because I think maybe I was a bit too obsessed about cricket, cricket, cricket. Yeah. And switching on and off, and gradually learned that by watching the other, you know, greats uh, who are played for in, in England. So. In, in my opinion, you know, that I, I'm so grateful that Andrew Flintoff gave me that opportunity. Without his backing and his support, I, I wouldn't have probably that, got that first test wicket, which was Alim Dar, uh, no, not Alim Dar, Sachin Tendulkar. And, um, you know, just watching his documentary, A Billion of Dreams, it was unbelievable just, just to see, like, you know, he was single-handedly giving hope to a people of, you know, one billion people. And... Uh, put India in in the global map, you know, as an international superstar where, you know, he did so much for the country and here I'm playing against someone like him, you know, who's absolutely massive. And then I got him out and I couldn't believe it. And um, it was just a moment of celebration where I was on that field celebrating, running towards point. And it was just an unbelievable feeling. I couldn't believe like, you know, my first test wicket was, you know, the great man Sachin Tendulkar. And that must have given you... 
I guess if if you get the best batsman out in the world, that must seep into your belief system that you can do anything. Absolutely. It kind of gave me the biggest belief that I can get any batsman out in the world. Like I didn't have any fear of any batsman and the intensity, you know, like playing in India kind of elevated my game to the next level. So I, I've always been, um, you know, grateful of India, really going to India, playing cricket there, the reception you get, the fans and everything. You know, without the fans, to be honest, you're not, you're nothing really. And mm. I remember like speaking to the likes of, you know, Gary Lineker, who said to me, you know, as long as the fans are recognizing you, you're relevant. The day yeah. the fans don't recognize you, that'll be it. And always, you know, speak to them, embrace them, give your time to them because they'll love it. So I always, you know, gave my time to the fans. And yeah, like without the fans, you know, you, you know, you can play in an empty yeah. stadium and it's not the same. But when it's packed, they, they, it's it's their energy that sometimes get you the wickets and that gives you the surreal moments that you play for your country. And in India, it is just a different level, isn't it? In terms of, and and how how were the Indian fans with yourself? You know, I guess looking for them, looking and saying, well, this potentially is one of our own, and playing for England, and you know, was the was that a difficult relationship, or do you think they they took you under their wing as well? Yeah, like the fans kind of felt like it was a, it was a celebration, really, celebration of both countries, UK and India. Um, you know, first generation families going to India um, to get a better, better, you know, better quality of life, and uh, and out of that there was this product <laughs> that came and played, being the first Sikh to play for 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 India, uh, and 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 also people. I think the Sikh community absolutely loved the fact that I'm still connected to like the the religion yeah. and and you know the tradition which makes them feel even more proud. But also the Indians and, and England, they feel very proud of that that relationship that they both have, that, they, you know, it, it was that kind of celebration, really seeing a Sikh guy from England playing against India. And then um, the fans loved it. You know, they they absolutely, probably uh, the reception is unbelievable when I, when I get to India. Just don't get their guard out. Well, that's <laughs> the problem. It's like when I, when I, when, when I, when we won, First time in 27 years in 2012. Um, uh, it was Alistair Cook's first uh, appointment as as captain, and um, I soon realised why 20 uh, percent of the population hate me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And who on that? Who who was your toughest opponent, and and why? Probably Graham Smith in England. I oh, could never yes. get him out. Yeah, yeah there was yeah. a moment where at Edgbaston he gloved it, but he, you know, when you're playing against a competitor. It, it, like some, when they're in a good form, they'll you know they'll, they'll they'll dominate you. But when you're not in the best of forms, you know you fake it till you make it. His body language will be so positive, so dominant. But inside, he probably knows he's not batting that well. But he would he would he would have that about him, and that was strong mental toughness. Because I remember he, he gloved it, and I thought, oh, he's probably not out either. And he's like, he's like got this strong, big you know South African figure, and he's down the wicket. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, he, I don't think he's hit that because his body language is telling me he hasn't. But he's faking it to me, and I didn't really appeal for it. I didn't really go hard at the appeal. And I wish I had done because he would have been given out. He probably would have won that test match. And I don't think Michael Vaughan after that would have announced his resignation as test captain. So putting putting, putting them all, all of them things together, um, that moment was so significant. But again, that's what the great competitors do key moments they seem to just somehow find a way of getting it in their favor 
and uh, Graham Smith. Yeah, he, he was one of them ones. He mm. wouldn't. He it wasn't his talent. It was a talented cricketer, but more so his presence yeah. and how he would keep himself positive and have that strong and you know yeah. real tough competitor like South Africans, man. They're like, yeah. gosh, they're very competitive, very tough, <laughs> they are. tough boys to crack a nut. And, <laughs> they are. Yeah. And what? And what about what about the cricketer that you learnt the most from? Oh, very good question. I think from Australia, probably, you know, okay. um, learning about how to gain respect, how to be competitive, how to play uh, attacking uh, India as well, you know, how um, to, to manage on and off, you know, and I think that's a, it's a different type of thing where um, uh, you, you're constantly like uh, when you're off the field, you feel like you're constantly um, working, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it could be gone to the restaurant. It could be there. There's always fans meeting you. You're always greeted by fans, hospital, great hospitality. And you've got to always, you know, um, like be accommodating because yeah. they, they absolutely love and adore you. So um, that was obviously a, a surreal moment for me. And, uh, and and just the competitive in Australia, you know, that you learn a lot from, you know, uh, when you play uh, tours away from England because England is is your comfort is your is you know you're, you're used to the pitches the ball in your hand when you do really well you go on the form of the county season but when you go to other nations um in particular Australia and India the ball is different the soil is different yeah. conditions are so different you've got to quickly adapt and find a way of how to be attacking uh in in, in those sort of unfamiliar conditions. And when we, I, I I love talking to ex-professional athletes because I think sometimes when we're in the middle of of our careers, it's hard to reflect and it's hard to quite know. So uh, this this next this next question I'd love to ask is: Now that you've done your playing career, is there anything that you wished you'd done different? You know, is there anything that I don't really like the word regret, but is there anything that you go, do you know what? Looking back, I wished I'd known that or wished I'd done that different. Yeah. I wish I had a PT Turner. Honestly, I wish yeah. I had a personal trainer. I okay. wish maybe someone like Kieran came into my life. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier uh, <laughs> in the podcast yeah. and he just took me away. and said, look, Monty, right. I, I've worked with high-level athletes, right? I know how to get you athletic. I'm gonna. That's that's my challenge. That's my mission, and I'm gonna get you there. After when I kind of stopped playing, I, you know, I did a few fitness sessions. I did, you know, I worked with him, and it was so much. Like I felt, I felt so much more athletic. Yeah. And I just wish I had that when I played for England. And before we move into life after cricket playing, what's the thing that you're the most proud of in your cricket career? I think I've got to say winning um, uh, in Australia, uh, winning the Ashes in Australia was big. And we remember sitting in at Sydney and as a team collectively going through the special moments. And uh, um, there were some, so many moments during that trip. Chris Tremlett's, you know, taking a five from the first day at Melbourne was unbelievable. Jonathan Trott's run out. Kevin Peterson with his off spin at the last session at, at Adelaide got Michael Clark out. Obviously, you know, he's known for his batting, but um, you know, he spins the ball and Greg Matthews and both of us, we, we have good friends. You always talk about getting your finger fish up. And I remember he's getting his hip through and he got that moment. It felt like, you know, just watching him as 12th man. I was yeah. like, I'm so happy for him. And um, also uh, 
uh, in India, you know, when we won the first time of 27 years, you know, Kevin Peterson's innings of 180 was unbelievable. Um, being, you know, with Alistair Cook as captain, bowling with Swanee, um, you know, that was a special moment because since then, no team, it's been over 10 years, no team has won in India. And I think that's, it's going to be very difficult because you need batsmen who can score quickly, but then you need spinners who outdo the Indian spinners, you know, in terms of pace and, and that. And I just think, It'll probably be a very long time now since uh, since that that sort of you know an, a foreign team wins a test series uh, in India. It's it's so subtle what you've just done there, Monty. But I I have to bring the attention. If the listeners didn't pick it up, I I think they will. I asked you the question: What makes you most proud? And you were very humbly just talked about the team. You know, you've just talked about. The, you know, the team results, you know, you even mentioned, you know, winning in Australia and Kevin Peterson getting his wicket and you're the 12th man, you know, and I think it says so much about you because how many, how many athletes that will just think about themselves, even when it's a team sport, Cristiano Ronaldo right now is trying to get, uh, is tried to get away from Man United so he could get the Champions League goal scoring record. You know, it wasn't even about winning the Champions League. So I, I think that says so much about you, Monty, and, and thank you for sharing that humility. Take me to that moment. You, the teams, the teams won the Ashes in Australia. Bunch of drunk Aussies have been abusing you all Australian summer, and and you're you're in the dressing room. How how's the camaraderie? How how's that? How is that moment? Tell our listeners about that. Oh, it's brilliant because before then we went to Germany, right? And we had this boot camp, which was you know so difficult, like getting up you know two a.m. and having a like a a siren in the middle of a jungle, got tents up and they made it like very much real life. Like we're getting ambushed and we got to quickly get out. And, you know, it was like that sort of army military training, which was collectively okay. build, build, bring us together as a team. And we didn't realize the impact of that until we got to Australia. Like it's a hot day. We can't get a wicket or, um, you know, there's tough conditions and we've, and we've got to bat it out. And there was then moments that we won because we had that collective team bonding session that you kind of feel like it's a group of 15 players as a squad that is taking on um, like 20, 26 million people or, you know, the whole nation of Australia. And we kind of went there and we, and we beat them. And, and that said a lot about, you know, the, the methods and, and, uh, and, 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 and about the coaching, the leadership at that time when Andrew Stas was captain um, and Andy Flower was a coach. So it's, said a lot about the group of um you know people of, of, of in that leadership position how how they were mainly managed to put the pieces together for us to you know win in, in in Australia and what's that night out like with KP and Freddie and and all of the boys it always looks like it's a night out that I'd love to have yeah it's a great night out but at, <laughs> at that time we had security around us and I remember they said that guys um I advise you not to go out but if you want anything is celebrate in the dressing room and then go back to the hotel. You can go downstairs in the bar and celebrate. I just wouldn't advise you to go out because, you know, there are going to be loads of people with cameras and stuff like that. But they are such special moments because it's that feeling. It's a, such a relief of like, wow, we talk about, you know, the great, you know, oh, you, that was a great fielding stop or what a great delivery that was or, you know, how good you was there or how funny that moment was. And it gives us a chance to just review the whole test series yeah. together, but have fun and enjoy ourselves. It's 
it's brilliant, honestly. And it just it just shows that, you know, when we that's why I say test cricket is the best form of the game. Because after your career, if you haven't won, let's say, a T20 World Cup or or or, or a 50 of a World Cup, people tend to always remember even now when, yeah. you know, they, they remember you as a test cricketer. They remember your uh, bowling or your batting or great moments because I think they understand that test cricket is collectively, you need at least seven to eight players to win you that game. With T20 one day, is it can take one play and take the game away in a space of half an hour. But that is over five days. It's such a different set of skills, which helps me now in my life. You know, all of them skills as I'm trying to become, obviously, you know, graduated in media journalism, uh, international sports journalism from St. Mary's University. So the goal is to, you know, to, to, um, you know, to be a Sky Sports presenter, have my own show at Talk Talk Sport or or a radio show, and then have a primetime show competing against maybe Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross called Monty Meets on a Saturday night at a, you know nine nine p.m. Where my first guest will probably be, you know, um, I don't know who would you like your first guest to be? Like I don't know, Lady Gaga maybe, <laughs> Freddie Flintoff. <laughs> yeah, Freddie Flintoff <laughs> will be my first guest. Then I'll have Kevin Peterson, and then my third guest. Uh, uh, I'll have Pierce Morgan and then Gary Lineker. And then we've got to have a president in there. So Boris Johnson, <laughs> there we go. You know, to to uh, to, get, to inject the viewing figures. Um, that's a dream and that's where I'm uh, running towards. And that's amazing because when, when, you, when you talk there about the dressing room after the game and the, those big moments and, you know, your face lights up and, and and it is it's a challenge i i was a professional tennis player not to the level that you've played played cricket monty but it's a challenge when you when you leave the sport you you no longer have structure in your life you no longer have that feeling of being someone the buzz i actually turned to gambling for a couple of years you know and it's something that luckily i got a hold of but it was some. I, I think we all tend to look for something. So how how's that challenge been for you as you as you moved out of cricket playing? Were you able to give you, you you've got a clear goal and purpose now? Was that clear from day one, or or did you struggle with that that initial period at first? Yeah, look, initially I, I was lucky to have my autobiography coming out during the World Cup, and and England won that World Cup that year. So that I'm always going to remember that. Um, the full Monty was out and England won the World Cup. Yeah. Not that I'm taking any sort of, you know, credit for it, <laughs> but uh, um, it's, it's it's them sort of moments where you kind of like think to yourself, right, you know, I've did a lot of media work there. England won the Ashes during that year as well. Um, would I, can I, can I, you know, maybe get a, a presenting role or a broadcasting role? But obviously I found it challenging because there's so much competition out there. So yeah. then I, um, you know, did a degree to so people, the industry can take me seriously. So I've done a you know a bit of an internship with CNN as well. It's just sort of you know, um, uh, I'm obviously going away to India to play you know cricket, but it's given me a bit of a feel and yeah. and you know and they and then gives a feel of the industry to see you know what I'm like as a as a broadcaster presenter, and so that's the goal now. You know I've got a bit of direction now, and and hopefully I'll, I'll just keep plugging away. Got, obviously got my own podcast called Monty Meets. Um, I'm sure you know. Uh, you'll listen. I, I think you'll listen to it at some stage. So, so that's that's what it is. You know, I, I, I had an opportunity to, you know, I'm, I have my own column with with the Telegraph as well. You know, do a bit of writing, and it helps. You know, I spoke to Atherton. He goes, you know, writing helps with your broadcasting, and it helps me. So, um, you know, uh, there we go. We have got a direction, and we just Absolutely. keep plowing away. 
Well, Monty, that uh, we have a quick fire round that I'm going to jump into to to finish off. But I think that's a nice place for the conversation to finish, you know. And we've we've had a bit of a whistle stop tour of Monty Panasar's life, but I think I think there's some amazing messages in there, you know, some amazing learnings. How you know you you have been down, you've brought yourself back up, you know, the importance of purpose, the importance of having people around you, you know, all of these things that are transferable skills into tennis, into life in, in general. And, and I think they're such great messages you've shared. So thank you. It's a, it's a big privilege for us to have you on Control the Controllables. But are you ready for our quick fire round? Yeah, let's go. So the, first, the start to the quick fire round, a, a little quiz for you. And who said this about you, Monty Panesar? Who called you Monty Python? Uh, Henry Blofeld. Very good. Who called you the best finger spinner in the world? That's what I'm saying. Duncan Fletcher. Okay, Duncan Fletcher. Duncan Fletcher. Who said to you and, and helped you along the way, the equation of life is 95% mental and 5% physical? My mentor? Yes. Yeah. And and now a little quick fire round. Test cricket or 2020? Test cricket. How many times did you get Sash and Tendulkar out? Five times. Four? Four, okay. <laughs> Four times. The same as the great late Shane Warne. Okay, but he played against them a lot more times than you did. Yes, yes, yes. So it's not a bad, it's not a bad spot, and it's yeah. not. We we have to mention him, and I'd love to ask you again. I know it's quick fire round, but when you mentioned Shane Warne, I mean he certainly got me watching cricket. You know, he got a lot of people watching cricket. Have you got a few words on Shane? Yeah, look, Shane Warne was a, a brilliant guy. I, I'll be honest with you, like. Um, um, Greg Matthews is a good friend of mine, shared this poem called, um, uh, I think it's Man in the Glass. And yeah. uh, basically, it, it basically says that when you get up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, you brush your teeth, you don't have your wife, your friends or your children around you or, or the people that, you know, that give you the applaudits. Now, if you lie to that man in the mirror, then you lie to yourself and you're lying to the rest of the world. And I think that's what Shane Warne was. He never lied to himself. He was honest. He goes, I love pizza. I love chips. I love a fag. I love a beer. Put a ball in my hand. I look through the look for the eyes of, of of the batsman. Tell him how I'm going to get him out. And he owned that. So when you when you when you're strong, when you when you when you're honest with yourself and you own yourself, everybody wants to be around that energy because it's a, such a strong you know uh, energy, and um, and and it just you know uh, magnetizes people. And that's what Shane Warne was. You know, he had friends from Hollywood to uh, all around the world. And uh, yeah, he was a big global icon because he was true to that man in the mirror. Yeah. And how good was he? How he was good... up, one of the best. Yeah, he was up there as the greatest ever. Greatest ever. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, batting or bowling? Um, bowling. <laughs> I didn't think you'd say that. <laughs> and 2020 cricket or the 100? I know they're very similar. But yeah, 20, it... I'll go for 20. Yeah, because the hundred, yeah. the hundred's another brand, isn't it? And it's it's certainly yeah, yeah. it seems to have also captured the imagination. And I'm big on equality in sport, and it seems like you know women's cricket's getting pushed with the with the hundred as well, which is which is fantastic. Um, a googly or a bouncer? 
Um, I'll probably say uh, googly. Uh, do you watch tennis? Yes, uh, big tennis fan. Five sets or three sets? Five sets. Who's your favourite player? Well, at the moment, it's Serena Williams because it's going to be her last um, Grand Slam and she retires. So I'm watching the US Open very closely and hopefully she gets a 24th Grand Slam. What will be a lovely story there. But obviously, Djokovic, I don't know what it is about Djokovic. I, something about his, about his tennis. He can't win this year's US Open. You've gone for Serena Williams on the women's side. We've all got to go for her. Let's all magnetise. It would be an incredible story for her to finish like that. Who's going to win the men's US Open 2022? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's going to be Nadal. Nadal looks on fire. Yeah, that would that would be amazing. What does, last two questions, what does control the controllables mean to you? It means like when you get angry, how do you control that emotion? Sort of letting it go, you know? I think, you know, if you can control that, which is great. And also control the controllables. If a coach gives you a game plan, do you stick to that? Do you have the discipline to stick to that? Or do you get bored after a while and then do something else? And and, and I think, you know, the great sports people like Alistair Cook was brilliant at that. Stick to a game plan. Do it all throughout the whole day. Um, and um, that's what it is, you know? So that's what you got to control the controllables you know you look at the sun sets and sun rises the sun does the same thing over again and if it changes that there'll be no sunlight so sometimes in nature give you a clue how great you can be if you can just control the controllables and who should our next guest be on control the controllables um boris johnson monty what you don't realize in the small print is whoever you say you are you're passing the baton so, I mean, I don't know if, you, if you've if you got the ability to get Boris on, but is there someone maybe more realistic that you could, that you Kevin could get Kevin Peterson. On? Kevin Peterson. If you're, I'm going to get in touch. If you're able to get that set up, that would be incredible. We would love to have KP on the, on the show. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Monty, you've been a star, an absolute star. Wishing you the absolute best. I'm going to be listening to Monty Meets. I'm going to be watching your career fly, your next career after after cricket. Or, um, or maybe Andrew Flintoff. If you could get Andrew Flintoff, that would also be amazing. I'm going okay. to drop you a message and, and hold you to that. Okay. Uh, that's your that's your controllable now to all get right, to get those boys on. Top man, thank you for coming on and, and all the best. Thank Take you care. so much. Thanks, Monty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, firstly, I have to say... As much as I love talking to Monty, you you haven't got the best predictions at the US Open because since that chat <laughs> a few days ago, this great Serena Williams bowed out and also the great Rafael Nadal bowed out as well. So two, two picks he's gone with. Um, stick to cricket, maybe Monty, uh, but loved loved the conversation and and just so many takeaways from it. You know, I think you know big one for me, and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast. The the importance of having a purpose. You know, we do we do hear that, but what does that mean? You know, really digging into that and you know Monty finding his purpose, whether that's on the cricket field or off the cricket field, was so so important. And 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 his purpose as well, and one of his big bits that he he spoke about and he kept coming back to it was was that feeling of of, of being athletic you know that you know how he'd wished 
that he'd had somebody like Kieran to work with throughout his career. And I think it's such a good message. Marty Fish spoke to us, you know, that as big controllable that he absolutely nailed for me when I asked that question, what does control the controllables mean to you? And Marty Fish talked about, like, ultimately, you can control the shape you get in. You can control how much work you put into that side. And, and as a professional athlete, that has to be a non-negotiable. You have to feel good on the court. You have to be in that position where you've got the confidence that you can handle the rigours of whatever the sport that you are in. And that certainly came through loud and clear. But it also, you know, you think a cricketer playing, travelling the world, playing for their country, that life is good. And we get this in the tennis world all the time. And as Europeans, we again, this is a topic we've touched on. You know, we don't have it as bad as, as the Australians who have to leave home often for four or five months at a time. You know, high-profile players, Nick Kyrgios, and he went into the US Open and he said, I don't mind if I, I, don't mind if I lose. It's a win-win. If I win, I continue but it's the last tournament of my leg before I get to go back home. So if I lose, I win as well. And certainly Ash Barty can relate to that. Ultimately, I think it's the reason that she stopped playing the game of tennis. And and I guess for us, the the viewer, the, the fan, it's sometimes hard for us to empathise with that. You know, that's what we want to do. That's what our kids want to do. That's what we've dreamt about doing, playing on these big courts. But the reality is a lot harsher than that. And, you know, as as a cricketer spending 250 plus days in a hotel. Now, anyone that's got kids who have been doing your head in for the last six, eight, ten weeks of the summer holidays, you'd probably welcome a few nights in a hotel uh, away from them. Uh, however, the, that reality is, you know, it's, it's a lonely place to be. And, you know, it brings with it a lot of mental health difficulties. You add in you add in the challenges of, of injuries and it really can be a lonely place to be. And, and I think it's important, us, the viewer who, who watches the sport, that we do remember that it's human beings that we're watching after all. And, and I can certainly take that into tennis. You know, it is, it, is a, it is a sport that demands so much, but no more than the demand of being away from home. And cricket, you're a team sport, it's difficult there. Tennis, you're not. And when you're playing at the lower levels of the game, you don't have any support team. You know, as you get to higher rankings and you can take girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, family members, um, you see Serena Williams's dog running around at the practice courts, you can almost take home to the events. But when you're already struggling to, to pay for your own airfare, you're not taking anybody with you. And then you're not staying in very nice hotels. And, and that is a real challenge. And it's not for the faint-hearted, you know, but those that do come through, that manage to spend all of those years on the low tours in our sport, I tip my hat to them. And, and there's been so many success stories. And that sets you up for life, you know, the ability to do that and have the resilience. So it's great for Monty to share some of those little stories, the little insights. He didn't fully tell me about the night out with KP and Freddie Flintoff. Um, my, my, my last thing 
who do we want? Do we want Boris Johnson? He, um, he, do we want Freddie Flintoff? Do we want KP? You know, we're now opening into the next world of sport. You know, as we as we do that, you know, there's plenty of guests that we can start to open up, I'm sure. Let me know who you'd like to hear. We'll get on to Monty and we'll get him to deliver. Please don't pick Boris Johnson. And back back to tennis. You know, we've gone into, and actually as I am recording this on a late Tuesday night, you know, we're in the quarterfinal stages. A big shout out to the Brits, the Brits who have been on. You know, we've got now after tonight two semi-finalists in the men's doubles in Joe Salisbury and also Rajiv Ram, who's a, who's been a friend and guest on the podcast. And then Neil Skopsky and his partner, Wesley Kuloff, they're also through to the semi-finals. And then my boy, I coached them from the age of 10 to 23, 24 years old, spent 13, 14 years uh, he's a bit of a miserable so-and-so, but we love him to bits. And a very proud moment to see Lloyd Glasspool and his partner pull off an amazing win last night against Kyrgios and Kokonakis. And they, in about half an hour's time, I'll be staying up to watch him play in his quarterfinal match as well. So a big shout-out to all of those guys and to Louis Kaya, the genius behind that. But the, the women's singles, it's hard to pick. It's, you know, there's there's some of those names that we did talk about. Pagula is in there. She now plays Igor Sviontek. You know, I think there's some great matches to come up. Ange Jaber, someone we always mention on the podcast. I know she beat my watch out pick, Tom Lanovic, who had, a, had an amazing run earlier this evening. And I'll certainly be watching as the, as the week progresses who's going to be coming out on top. And then on the men's side, we're going to have a new Grand Slam winner. And amazing for me, and I was speaking actually earlier today to Carl Mize, my performance director at Soto Tennis Academy, and he didn't actually believe me when I told him that Casper Ruud could be world number one after the US Open because Carl did a lot of work in Norway and did some work with Casper when he was younger. And I know that they're absolutely going wild in Norway. He's now through. He beat Berrettini earlier this evening. He's through to the semi-finals. If he makes the final and Alcaraz doesn't, he is your new ATP world number one. If they both make the final, the winner becomes world number one. If Alcaraz makes the final and Rude doesn't, then Alcaraz becomes the world number one. And if neither of them make the final, then Rafael Nadal is back to world number one. It's exciting. It got, it's gone against the big three, the big four that we've had the last few years. But what an exciting place that men's tennis and women's tennis is in right now. And at this point, I would love to see Iga Iga Sviontek, sure that she can do it on a hard court as well as a clear court and get another Grand Slam under her belt. Enjoy the tennis. Enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are in the world. Thank you for listening as always. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.